Good morning. If you'd go ahead and remain standing with me as we read from Philippians. If you're using one of these uh, blue Bibles, we're on page uh, 570. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Um, I am, I'm also introducing uh, Jared, uh, who is preaching for us this morning. Um, Jared and Michelle have been married for 13 years. 13 years. They've got four kids, uh, Samson and then twin girls, Maggie and Grace and Asher. Um, Jared and I have known each other for over 20 years now. Um, and it was great when looking at the title for a sermon, talking about the humility of, of Jesus. Like, oh man, that, that's perfect. Because if you go back to like high school, Jared, and list his character qualities, humility would not even be anywhere near the list. Like ego, pride were probably the top number one and two. <laughs> um, Jared and I matured a lot uh, together over the years, not because we're mature now, but because we were so immature when we met. Um, but no, Jared, uh, faith, faithful brother, faithful brother in Christ, he, he and I went to college together. We lived in the same house for a couple of years. We served in a college ministry together. Um, Jared, and then Jared was on staff with our church in Kansas City. He helped kind of start student ministry at that church, and he and, Ma- and Mallory was part of, of kind of getting that started as well, and then I was able to join that uh, a year or two later. And so we just have, over the years, um, we don't talk as much as I would like, but every time we do, it's like, it's like we just pick up where we left off. And um, in the beginning of Philippians, when Paul talks about the joy that he has, when he thinks of the Philippians, when he prays for them, that's, that's the joy that I feel any time I think about Jared. It's just that just there's instant joy because of the depth of relationship that we've had together for so many years. So um, I'm excited for him to come and, uh, and share with you guys, and I'm sure he'd be happy to tell you stories about me afterwards if you want to ask him. So um, thanks, Ben. Well, hey, good morning, guys. It's really good to be here with you. Um, yeah, it was great to get this passage because like Ben said, I haven't struggled with pride at all since high school. So uh, I'm well qualified to preach on it. No, I'm just totally teasing. Uh, this was really good for my soul to be in Philippians alongside of you guys. And I just wanted to get one thing out of the way. Being in Seattle, a proud Kansas City and like Ben and his family, just wanted to say go Chiefs up on the stage for everybody. I know you guys remember what it was like to win Super Bowls up here a few years ago, but I uh, just had to, had to say that um, in solidarity with Kansas Cityans uh, in the room. So, uh, but in all seriousness, I really do have a, 
a fondness for you all, even though I've just now been able to meet many of you um, from afar, as Ben has kind of talked about the journey of Icon and their journey here in Seattle, and really just for Seattle as a city, you all have experienced that over the last several of years has been a difficult time uh, for Christians in this place. And so uh, I pray, I've prayed for you often, I've prayed for you often this week as well, and I just wanted to say if you find yourself this morning feeling discouraged or feeling like, man, I don't really want to be here this morning, or I'm not sure what I feel or believe or think about this passage or about the Bible or about God, or I just feel depressed or sad, or maybe it was a tough week, that this text is for you. And I think that that's such a cool thing about being a Christian is that no matter where you find yourself, no matter what the passage is, no matter what church you're at, the, the word was written for you in the moment that you find yourself in the place where your community finds itself. And so what a gift we have to like be here together. And so if everything's going great, it's for you too. You don't have to be going through anything hard or bad or tough uh, for it to be for you as well. But I hope that it can be some encouragement for you this morning to know that God's with us. Uh, if there were just a couple of us here, he would still be with us. If you were here alone in this, this room, he would still be with you. Uh, he's for you. He's actively working for your good. Everything that has happened to you in your whole life was an expression of God's love for you, which is kind of crazy to think about when you step back and think about his sovereignty, his will, his purposes, his kindness towards you. And so that's really what I want you to feel, what I want you to experience as we walk out of here later this morning is that God loves you more than you could possibly imagine uh, and that that would actually buoy you in, in tangible ways. Uh, one of my heroes, Tim Keller, who just recently passed away this year, uh, says that if the Bible was a mountain range, you know, and there's all these peaks of different passages, that this would be, you know, kind of in the Himalayas of, of mountain peak type of passages in the scripture. And because it's really a glimpse inside the very mind of Jesus, right? We get to see a lot of pictures of what Jesus did and who he was with and his conversations with the Father and things like that. But to have a very glimpse of his own mind is a pretty unique uh, passage, a pretty unique glimpse that we have. And so I was really excited to hear that you guys as a congregation are committing this to memory uh, because these are the types of passages that really can anchor you in the foundational truths of Christianity so that when things do get hard or you feel kind of confused or um, you know, sadness comes, tragedy comes, we need those anchors to kind of tether our souls to who God is. Uh, what is he like? What does he want us to know about himself? What has he disclosed about who he is, how he thinks? Because, man, the life is hard. <laughs> you all know that. I, I don't need to give you examples of that even. And we have really strong enemies of our own flesh and the devil and the world. But thanks be to God that we have a much stronger savior than all of those things, right? So, uh, I'm going to pray, and then um, we'll, we'll just kind of jump in together, if that's okay. Uh, so God, I ask you to show up uh, this morning knowing that you will, knowing that you promised to, and to attend to you know, feeble human words that come out of my mouth that I pray would bring life and hope and conviction, repentance, joy, love, all of the fruit of the Spirit to my friends in this place. God, I just ask really simply, would we be made a little bit more like Jesus because of our time worshiping together? Would we be a little bit more transformed by your spirit into his likeness by the time we walk out of these doors? Because we want you to be glorified over everything else in our life and we need to take on the mind of Christ in order to do that. We wanna be ambassadors in our families, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our small group, all of the places that you've 
placed us so that ever so slowly, you know, more and more, little by little, every single day, we get to embody this humility that's so beautifully shown here in order that other people might know you and in order that we might love you better and know you more deeply. So thank you so much, Lord, just for these people that are in this place, uh, that are listening to these words and the good works that they're doing in Seattle and in the surrounding area. And I just want to encourage them today, Lord. Would you help me um, spur them on towards love and good deeds in any way that I can uh, for your glory? And we pray all this and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if I had to give you just a couple of sentences in terms of sort of what to expect for the rest of the sermon. In this passage, we get this glimpse into the mind of Jesus, which reveals the life-altering beauty of mind-boggling humility, which is ultimately the only way to become fully human and the only way to become more like Jesus himself and to experience the glory of God. This is, in my opinion, the most counterintuitive of all of the characteristics of Christ, this, the supremely you know, glorious maker of the universe condescending down. The, the reality is that Jesus gives us a model that you go up by going down. You gain by letting go. You're freed by abandoning the pursuit of self that traps us. And so that's what we're gonna talk about. And I'm just gonna go through these verses kind of one by one, share with you what I felt like God spoke to me and hope that it is encouraging and helpful to all of us, if that's okay. And uh, last week, I know that Ben got to preach on the end of chapter one, and he talked about this reality of, of Paul exhorting this church, hey, let your life look like, like be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Actually live out what we're talking about. Let it, let it reflect the, the beauty of what we claim as Christians. And, and this passage, moving into chapter two, really is, in my kind of perspective, the engine and the fuel behind that exhortation. It's kind of the how you're able to do that. And you'll see more of those connections as you guys go through Philippians that are really cool. But just a little bit of background. I always think it's helpful. I'm kind of a nerd with like, man, who were those people and what were they thinking and who was the context and the audience and stuff like that. But so Philippi was a, a Roman colony. It was well known for its patriotic nationalism, which if you've lived in the United States for five minutes, you understand that we're well known for that as well, especially around the Olympics and stuff like that. But um, so Paul talking about Jesus being king would have been um, really gone against the grain of the culture there. Uh, and Christians following Jesus as king instead of Caesar would have really been disruptive um, to, to the way that things were in that time. And so I think in a very similar way, you guys living as believers in Seattle, a place that has a very different worldview in general overall uh, than a Christian worldview is you're kind of swimming against that stream. You're, you're up against um, a cultural boundary and obstacles that are, are not the same way in Dallas, Texas, or in Kansas City, Missouri, or places like that. And so I hope you can even feel a little bit of resonance just with Philippi knowing that about uh, their background. And I think that this passage is probably the most clear passage in all of scripture, though there's many you can go to, to, to one specific central tenet of our faith. And that's the reality that Jesus is God. Do you know what I get that from? I get that from verse six where he says, being in very nature God, <laughs> right? There's not a, there's, I'm not a Greek expert. Uh, I'm not as smart as Ben. I'm not gonna go into the details of all of that, but I think it's pretty clear. There's not a lot of jujitsu you gotta do with the Greek or with the Hebrew or anything like that to understand he's, he's saying Jesus is fully God. 
um, and also fully men that we'll get to as well. But this is pretty problematic for worldviews who say, well, yeah, I like Jesus. He's cool. He was a good teacher. He was a nice guy, which I'm not saying Jesus wasn't a nice guy and the best teacher of all time, but the reason he was those things is because he was God in the flesh. Uh, And that is uh, meaning not like Jesus wasn't a hologram. He wasn't, you know, some kind of weird thing that was going on. He was fully substantive, the full being, the full embodiment, equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. And that's a non-negotiable as a Christian. We, that is a, a foundational reality that we have to believe and know and stand upon. And the fact that he wasn't just divine. He was 100% God but also 100% human. He never stopped being God, even while he was here in the flesh with us, which should blow our minds, and it does when we really kind of stop and think about that. We don't know anything else like that that can be that way. You know, a dog can't be fully a dog and fully a cat, right? At the same time, we don't have any other concept of how God works in this way, and um, it should blow our minds, and he's experienced everything that you have, which I think is a really helpful backdrop for this passage. I found myself in Hebrews a lot, which I thought it was really cool that you guys had a Hebrew response prayer up there, um, because he's experienced loneliness. If you're lonely today, he knows what that feels like, maybe even deeper than we do, just being abandoned by his friends and being alone on the cross with even the Father turning away from him. As we just sang, if you've been afraid, Man, he's, he was so afraid he was asking for the cup to pass from him, right? He didn't want to go through that, um, but for the joy that was set before him. If you've been depressed, if you've been angry, I don't know if anybody here has like flipped over tables in the temple, but he's been there, you know, he's whipped, whipped people. Uh, he was so angry. Uh, he's been abandoned. He's experienced trauma. So all of the things that you've experienced throughout your life, Jesus gets to relate to you as this great high priest who can sympathize with you because he was also fully human, and I'm getting into Hebrews and trying to preach too many sermons, so I'll we'll just kind of zoom us back to verse one, but um, I think that that's a really helpful, just kind of overview of understanding that hypostatic union is the theological terminology of Jesus being fully God and fully man that really changes the way that Christianity stands amongst world religions as, as supremely unique uh, in that way. So, so look down at verse one with me, and we'll just start going kind of one by one. Um, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. And I think it's kind of interesting the way Paul writes sometimes because he's, he's giving you the answer to these hypothetical questions that he's asking, right? He's going, well, I want there to be all of this love and sympathy and this implication that encouragement, comfort, participation, affection should be the reality of your community. That's what I want to see happen amongst you guys. I'm giving you the outcome of what having the mind of Christ should produce in you, within your group, as you guys follow Jesus together. He's giving them a vision for communal life, which is what you all are doing as well, right? When your pastors or when guests get up or when your leaders or your deacons or your small group leader is talking to you about, hey, this is how we wanna love one another. This is how we want to walk together in humility and unity. A lot of that comes theologically from this specific passage amongst other places in the scriptures. So then if we skip down to first verse two, he's saying that joy, you're making my joy complete. That's what I want to see happen. It'll make me so happy to see you guys walking in this way because joy is always communal. 
it's, it's always at its best when it's together, right? You can have individual joy, you know, maybe the accomplishment of learning how to ride a bike, you know, or, but even that, you're with mom and dad or you're with somebody who's teaching you or you can have the, the individual joy of watching the Chiefs win the Super Bowl, right? But it's so much better when you're with your friends or when you're calling them the, and they live in Seattle and you get to celebrate together, those kinds of things. He, he feels these things for this church and he wants them to share it together, wants them to experience it, wants us to experience this really rare thing, like increasingly more rare, which is the treasure of unity that transcends boundaries, transcends differences, it transcends uh, ethnic realities, transcends socioeconomic realities, and it really reflects what heaven will be like. That's why unity is such a big deal in the Bible is because heaven is going to be the most unified place and look so diverse in ways that we can't even fathom right now here on earth. And so um, unity is this lifelong labor of love as you walk as a Christian. I'm sure that many of you have had tests of your unity with other brothers and sisters or within your family or within friend groups and things like that. And, and you might know if that's been you that unity can be lost very quickly. It can be lost in a moment. Uh, it can be lost because of a singular failure. Uh, and so you have to work for that all of the time. You have to be pursuing unity every day and it's so, so worth it. Um, that's, that's what I wanna just name is that it's a worthwhile calling that Paul is, is pointing us to and it makes much of God because it's not the way the world works. The world is not a unified place. So to elaborate on that just a little bit in these next couple of verses, so verse three, I just kind of did the, the lazy preacher thing and looked up some synonyms for ambition and conceit because we don't really talk that way a ton, or at least I don't, I'm not talking about selfish ambition and vain conceit a lot, but you can think about arrogance or self-importance, pride, vanity, egoism, unholy aspirations, never satisfied longings are all words that have similar connotations and this is how politics works, this is how business works, this is how social hierarchy works within the world. We experience this all the time. Everybody's just kind of trying to get ahead, trying to advance themselves, trying to use other people. And sometimes we even can use other people in a nice way to make it seem that we're not using other people. You can do this in your marriage. You can do this with your children. And we do it all the time. And I just wonder how many of us, I wonder for myself this week, actually have ever considered other people more significant than we are. Because there's a, there's a difference in like, you know, fighting for equal human rights, right? Or, or, or wanting to level the playing field or wanting to make sure everybody has the same opportunities. But that's very different than saying, no, I, I am going to treat this person better than me as if they, they have more value, more worth than I do my own self. I, I don't do that often if I'm honest. Like, or if I, if I do, I don't do it with pure motivation all of the time. There's, there's always like kind of some selfishness mixed up in there. I want them to like me or I think maybe they'll pay it forward to me or something like that um, because my, my sin, my flesh is in the way. Um, we, th- we think all the time, or I, I think anyways, I don't want to project onto you, but man, nobody really knows how awesome I am, right? You know, if they, if they just knew how great I was, they would give me the respect or they would give me the whatever that I'm due. And we're really narcissists to the core, left, left in our sin. And if you're a Christian here and you're a new creation, you're being changed more and more into the image of Jesus, hopefully those things are slowly but surely kind of melting away off of you. But it always kind of rears its ugly head, especially in moments where we feel like we've been wronged or we didn't get something that we deserve 
We want to be seen. We want to be recognized and appreciated. And those aren't bad things, like just to be clear, in and of themselves. But what's bad is when we make those ultimate things of I must be respected. I must be known. I must be viewed as amazing, um, that they become idols. And when those things become idols, it becomes really easy for us to judge, to punish other people um, who become obstacles to, to get in our way of, of that recognition or that valuing that we want. And that actually makes us into the total opposite of what God made us to be. I had this, this vision this week kind of like in my mind, and this could be because I was watching a zombie show, but that selfish ambition and vain conceit kind of transform us. They devolve us into versions of an image bearer of God that's the total opposite of what we're meant to be. Just like a zombie is just mindlessly pursuing, you know, the next meal or whatever, just killing or just existing, like not even knowing what's going on. That's what can happen to us. We're just like these grotesque versions of a human made in the image of Christ, meant to live out the way of Jesus, uh, but unable to do so because of that selfish ambition and vain conceit. And man, that's really why this passage is so mind-blowing for me is that we can't even look at people in our own demographic, our own friend circles, and treat them better than us. And the, the story of humanity has been the more different you get from people apart from the, the love of Christ, and, and even within the church we're guilty of this, we tend to treat people worse the more different they are than we are. We're afraid of differences. We're afraid of people who don't do things or think about things the way that we do. But Jesus, who is fully divine, as we've already talked about, he's seated at the right hand of God, the most honorific place in the universe, fully other from us, totally holy, supremely glorious, maker of all things, owns everything. He comes down to this mud ball, this corrupt place full of people killing each other and hating each other and not loving God, living as they were made to be. And he puts his hands in the dirt and he's born in the stable and he takes on this flesh, he limits himself with this flesh and becomes susceptible to disease and splinters and stub toes and all of the, the frustrations, mosquitoes, you know, like that, that we're susceptible, susceptible to. He becomes a nobody carpenter's son from a nowhere place in the middle of, at the time, the smallest nation on earth. Why? This is the the most confounding condescension that he would leave that place. It's a condescension beyond our comprehension. And this isn't still a good enough analogy, but it's kind of the closest we can get. This is like you becoming an ant, right? Or becoming a little spider or becoming this, a paramecium even maybe would be like a better analogy of going as far away from the apex of created beings down to the, you know, a single-celled organism would be still not even scratching the surface of the difference of what Jesus left and what he came down to. And I just saw in that that the God-man goes as far away from his throne as he possibly can because that displays his heart as clearly as he possibly can. Jesus could have found a way to save us from heaven. He's God, right? He can do anything that he wants. But he chose to come down and take on flesh, be with us, experience our life fully as a human um, because that was the best way. That him and the Father and the Spirit before 
all time said this is the way we can show our love for our creation more clearly than anything else. And this is the way to flourish. This is the way to shalom. This is the way to true happiness and fulfillment and goodness for everyone. Taking on this mind of Christ, it's the only way. Because as long as we think that we're better than somebody, even by a little bit, uh, we are going to keep fighting. You're going to keep hating. You're going to keep having rivalry and envy and destruction and implode upon ourselves in selfishness. And this is not new. This is not new to 2023. This has been the story of humanity since the very beginning. And you only have to watch the news a few minutes, right, to see it at play or to even maybe see it in your family or see it in your own heart when you're laying in bed at night. So we need the mind of Jesus. We need to be changed and transformed by him. So look down at verse four. We'll keep going. He doesn't say don't look out for your own interests. He said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And I think that's interesting because sometimes we can maybe read this in a way that says we just have to totally forget about ourselves and not take care of ourselves and only worry about other people. And that can lead to like codependency. That can lead to like really poor practices of self-care and you can get really unhealthy. It can lead to like almost becoming like an insincere chameleon, you know, of just, I'll just kind of become like whoever I'm with so that they like me and things like that. And he doesn't say that. It's implied that you will actually look out for your own interests, but not just your own interests. It's not about making your interests fit with other people of like, oh, Ben likes football, so I'll pretend I like football, so he'll be friends with me. It's about the passion of your heart changing such that your interest is in the flourishing of another more so than it's in your own flourishing. So if there's a way that I can help your life, I want to be more concerned about that, just like Jesus was more concerned with doing that for us than he was with his own comfort in heaven. And I think what Paul's doing here is he kind of liberates us from this bind of like either you have to be only invested in your own interest, which is narcissism, or only invested in the interest of others, which can lead to codependency and all of these kind of weird things. But as we grow in caring for other people, as we grow in the mind of Jesus, we can experience freedom here. And I, I hope that all of you here have experienced the joy of providing something for somebody. Like maybe that's a gift for a child at Christmas, or maybe that's just doing something kind for a neighbor or caring for an elderly parent or something like that, where you're experiencing the joy of knowing that you're helping, knowing that you're serving, knowing that you're enriching their life, making their life better, and you're not thinking about any kind of repercussions to that. You're not thinking about, what am I gonna get out of this? You're not, when I give my six-year-old son a, a Pokemon card, I'm not thinking like, oh, I can't wait, you know, 50 years from now, he'll take care of me when I'm old because I did this for him. You know, I'm just thinking, man, he thinks this is the coolest thing ever, and that makes me happy to know that, that he's enjoying this, this gift. And so that's when we start to understand this truth that Jesus says, right, that, that it really is more blessed to give than to receive. And, and Jesus knew that more deeply than we even understand as he gave himself for us. You go up by going down. And I think one of the coolest examples of this, uh, and I love that we're seeing this in Philippians as the author, Paul, his trajectory going from you know, this radical Jew who's so radical that he's killing Christians in the name of Yahweh, right? 
And then as he, we see him write, as we, he introduces himself in letters or he closes letters, he'll say things early on in his life, just because we know when letters were written and things like that. Um, man, I'm, I'm a horrible person, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I deserve damnation, all of these kinds of things, but God rescued me. To the end of his life, Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, he's led the early church. He calls himself the chief of all sinners. I am, I am the worst of all sinners. I'm the worst possible. Whereas all of us would look at that and go, no way, man. Like You're like hero of the faith. You're amazing. But he had this downward trajectory where he's going lower and lower and lower and understanding more and more and more how far away his sin had separated him from God and how far the distance was that Jesus had to travel to come and get him. That this, he's, he's going up by going down in the way that he understands who he is. He understands I can't try hard to be a good person. I can't climb a ladder of righteousness. It's all grace. It's all mercy. It's all his doing. Like I didn't do anything to deserve this. He came and rescued me, and that's the only way to be free is by trusting in that righteousness in your place. We see in verses five and six this phrase that Jesus didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, which is a really interesting way to describe kind of letting go of something, right? To not, not hold on to it so tightly. I don't know about you, but there's times when I'm, I'm worried about, maybe it's money, for instance, of gosh, like I really gotta be careful with this money because if it's gone, and I operate out of this scarcity mindset of, man, what's gonna happen? Or like, we won't, we'll lose our house or we'll lose our car or something like that and I gotta protect this thing. And Jesus was the total opposite, opposite of that with his position as God himself and freely of his own accord, he let that go to come down because he cared more about accomplishing the Father's will he cared more about your salvation than he did his own comfort. And he knew that the ultimate result would be so much greater than what he had even alone with the Trinity, that it would be this glorious thing for you, for me. And see, I think that we often, I often do the opposite, where I tend to, I would never say this out loud, this is kind of confessional time, but I tend to, to equate equality with God as something to be grasped. And if you're a good Christian, you go, no, I would never do that. Like, but here's the thing. I think any time we try to live in control of our life, any time we try to orchestrate things to be the way that we want them to be, any time we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to, any time you try to create happiness apart from God, you're trying to, to grasp something that is not yours to grasp, that you were never meant to be. Anytime you're seeking to be the king or the queen of your own life, when you think you know what's best, better than God, I, I talk with my kids, especially my youngest, Asher, about this all the time. Hey, buddy, when you, are, say, when you reject what mom and dad say is best, that it's not time for a snack or it is time for bedtime, you, what you're saying is you think you know better than us. Do you really think that? No, mom, have we always cared for you? Have we kept you alive and happy and provided? Yes, we have. But he gets in this mindset where he thinks, well, like, well, no, going to bed at eight would be way better than seven, you know, or whatever the case may be. Or fruit snacks at 2.30 are way better than fruit snacks at one, you know, whatever the case may be. And um, he gets in this mindset. And we do the same thing. I'm not picking on my six-year-old, but we do the same thing when we think, well, no, maybe maybe I, this sin isn't that bad. Maybe what God said about it isn't actually something that I have to obey all the time, or maybe I don't need to be this way uh, towards these people, whatever 
it might be that pops up in our hearts and it, it never works to play God because we weren't meant to be God. We were meant to be his creation, his sons, his daughters. Uh, and I, we all can probably give lots of experiences and confessions in this room of ways that we've tried to do that and you know it doesn't work. And so my plea would just be abandon that. In those moments when you find yourself doing that, catch yourself, repent, believe the gospel and turn back to him because um, you can't. Let him be God. Uh, don't try to be that yourself. So then I wanna make sure that I've got some time for application. So I'm gonna go through kind of verses seven through 11 fairly fast. We, this is this beautiful poem um, that Paul writes that uh, a lot of scholars believe was, was almost like a hymn in the, in the early church that they would recite. So I think it's so cool that you guys will get to do that, you know, in your small group or your Bible studies or just when you see each other on a Sunday to be able to to recall these words as you commit them to memory, that Jesus emptied himself, that he took on this form of a servant. And that, that emptying, mean, again, isn't that he like poured the God out of himself and so now he's just this shell. It was saying he emptied like his right, his claim on that Godhood that he still possessed, but he, he could have easily right, called down legions of angels. Remember that story of if he wanted to, he had all of this power at his fingertips and he, he intentionally did not take advantage of it. And more so than that, like that would be enough to go, whoa, this is crazy, but he actually took on the lowest form he possibly could to show us what it means to love and to serve others. Verse eight says he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, because he trusted the Father's will over his own desire. He didn't want that cup. Nobody would want that cup, but he knew that it was the only way. He knew the decision that the Godhead had made in eternity past. It was this perfect obedience at immeasurable cost to himself, at immeasurable loneliness and loss. So therefore, right, in verse nine, God exalts him to the highest possible place. Because he went down, God sends him up and he bestowed on him the name that's above every name. What a beautiful name that it is, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, even those on the earth and under the earth, and by the way, that means spiritual beings too. You're talking every, every created being, demons, angels, humans, everybody, someday is gonna bow and confess that the name of Jesus is the highest name, that he is Lord, the staunchest atheist, the most radical Muslim, the most lukewarm Christian, everybody. That's, that's the end of the story. This is what we're getting. We're getting the, the, the last play in the playbook. And I wanna be on the right side of that confession. I don't want to have regrets on judgment day. I wanna have joy and confidence. I don't want that, that knee being bowed to be something that's forced by the power of Jesus or by this eternal regret that I have to live with. I want to, to joyfully go, yeah, that's my king. Like I, I don't know if you guys have watched the quarterback documentary. Sorry, I just, it's fresh on my mind, just watched the end of it yesterday, but when I see Patrick Mahomes do something crazy, I'm like, that's my quarterback. You know, I can't believe this. I've had garbage quarterbacks my whole life, and now I get to say the best quarterback ever. That's mine. Like, how much more so, right, King Jesus, uh, to be able to do that at the end of days. And so, okay, so eight minutes left. All of this we go, yeah, cool, so what, right? What does this mean for my Tuesday afternoon? What does this mean for the next time I hang out with somebody from church or I talk with my neighbor? And I'm gonna talk specifically to Christians in the room because I do think that this is uh, a timely application maybe for us as a church and the cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And it's just something I've run into 
over and over and over over the years that I think uh, I wish more churches were committing uh, Philippians 2 to memory. I think they could avoid a lot of the issues they find themselves in. And there's a thousand things that we could talk about because of the depth of this passage. But one thing that I'm really praying for like kind of the big C church, but also for you, Icon, and for other churches that I know and love, uh, that I pray changes in the coming years and decades is there's just this really profound prevalence that I've found, and I hope it's not as prevalent here as I've experienced in other places, but there's kind of this fighting that happens over theology and preference that I think grieves the heart of God and is not embodying the mind of Christ in humility. And here, here's what I mean by that. So unfortunately, I imagine many of you already have like images that are coming to mind when I say that of, of Christians that kind of arguing over secondary theological issues or preferences that they might have that are different and Maybe you've experienced even here um, but, or frequently over the years. I know that I have, and some of those things might be baptism, right? Do we baptize babies? Do we not baptize babies? Do we, you know, how does that work? Spiritual gifts, right? Are, is there, have they ceased? Do they keep going? The end times, gender roles, right? There's a thousand things that we could put on that list, um, and we're experts at fighting like siblings um, over those things, unfortunately. I think in, in many ways we're almost more well-known for that to the watching world than we are for our love and our care and our humility, our embodying of Jesus. I had this moment this week where I was, I was literally typing like in my manuscript and my kids are arguing about something and it's like, you know, it's that moment where you're like, okay, this is getting too intense. I can't just like let them figure it out. So I got to like shut my computer. I'm frustrated and get up and I'm like, what's going on? You know, like, t- like, trying to get some semblance of, of where the, the, the screaming's coming from. And it's like, well, he wanted to play the game this way and she didn't want to play the game that way. And it like made no consequence like over how they actually ended up playing hide and seek, you know, what the rules were. It's like the difference between a 15 second head start and a 20 second head start. You know, it's like, what are you guys even talking about? And I just, I had this moment of like, man, is this God like looking at Christians on the earth going like, what? That's, you're missing it. You know, like that has nothing to do with what you're actually here to do. If the proverbial, you know, game of hide and seek um, that I made for you, this mission that I've given to you and um, it tarnishes our witness, quite frankly. I can't tell you how many non-believers I've talked to that are like, hey man, I like you, I like your friends or whatever, but man, like, you don't have to go online much to like, read about Christians like, fighting each other or, or even like, our history of people killing each other over the way they baptized or like, killing each other over the, the things that they believe, these secondary theological issues. And it's the total opposite of the attitude that's described here in Philippians 2. And I just wanted to say, like, I had this thought that, like, nobody's coming into the family of God because a Christian was a jerk about a theological reality, right? And I'm not saying, like, we let heresy run rampant in the church. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about secondary issues. I'm not talking about the main tenets of our faith, about the divinity of Christ or things like that. Um, but we have to major in the majors. And I think that's a large part of what Paul's talking about here, what he talks about to the early church um, as he writes. And just kind of a, a personal example from my life, I have the privilege of serving as uh, what's called an executive director of operations for a company called Marketplace Chaplains in Kansas City. So in Kansas and Missouri, I lead a team of about 60 chaplains. And these chaplains come from all over, male, female, old, young, retired, bivocational, um, many of them have, have had 
like past ministry experience. Many of them are just believers who love Jesus and want to love people in the workplace. And what they do is they go and visit car dealerships and assisted livings and restaurants and really anything you can imagine and just go try to love on employees. And it's really like a massive mission field where uh, people who may never consider darkening the doors of a church get this interaction from a Christian chaplain just, who's just there to care for them, not to judge them, not to do anything, um, but just be there for them, be available for them. It's really cool. I have chaplains from every background you can imagine. It's very interdenominational. It's very ecumenical. And quite frankly, I was pretty nervous uh, about that going into this role because it's like I've got Nazarene chaplains and Presbyterian chaplains and Baptist chaplains and just you're like, oh my God, kind of like the, the, the family um, gathering where you're like, I don't know, is Uncle Bob going to say something crazy to, you know, like whatever, and are they going to get mad? And um, it's actually been amazing and beautiful because what happens is all of those secondary things, it's not like they don't matter, but it's like everybody sort of puts those to the side a little bit and goes, hey, this is what we're here for. We want to see people meet Jesus. And it's been the most fruitful year, little over a year of ministry that I've ever had. And I was a pastor for 12 years in Kansas City. And I've, I've sat and thought about that a lot. Or people ask me, like, why do you think that is, you know, that, that things have been so fruitful here? And um, at the end of the day, I think one of the things that, that I feel sadness about as I look back is so much of my time was spent listening to, to Christians specifically complain about something. Like, it was like, I didn't like the sermon, or I didn't like the music, or I don't like the carpet, or I don't like the way the parking is, or I don't want to serve that often, or I don't want to, you know, like, and there's just all this stuff that we get kind of wrapped up in, and we lose sight of the mission, um, and I don't say that to, like, to shame anybody, or, like, all, all of those things, like, we, we need to have discussions about, but my goodness, if you don't like the curriculum in the kids' ministry, can we just have a, like, a heart-to-heart conversation about that instead of, like, just complaining or like taking up time, like worrying about something that is detracting us from the work of the ministry. And so something I've been really convicted about, something that I'm tempted to do. Um, so my, my challenge or like my question would be, you know, maybe the next time you find a preference or a theological conviction that isn't primary, and sometimes it takes work to sort of sort through those things, right? So even just was talking with a friend yesterday before Ben and came to pick me up and um, he's going, yeah, like my small group, I lead our small group. We decided to take a break for the summer, about a month long. We just had a baby. Things have been kind of stressful. We're moving. I thought, you know, every, people were going on vacations. I thought that would be a really good thing. Um, and there was one couple in our group that really struggled with that. They were really frustrated with me. They didn't want to take a break. They wanted to keep going. And it's like, that's, that's a preference thing. There's, there's nothing in the scripture that's going to go, man, you're right for wanting to take a break or you're wrong for wanting to take a break. It's just one of those things that as believers, we can kind of lay down our preferences and go, hey, if that's what my leader like wants to do, I can voice my concern and then sort of like let that go. I don't have to like, you know, get really upset about that and make that a big deal throughout the summer and now it's weird. And, thing, and I'm just using that as one silly like recent example. We do that about all kinds of things. Um, but my, my challenge would be like, hey, what if you laid that down? What if, what if you didn't have to make your opinion known about something that's secondary or more minor? What if you, or what if you had that conversation one-on-one and, it, and you still are kind of at odds and you just go, hey, I'm gonna defer, right? Like out of, out of living out of the mind of Christ, I'm gonna lay down my desires, my preferences, my opinions um, so that you can have yours, so that your life can be more full in that way. And, I, and just to even wonder in those moments, like I, I've been in arguments with people uh, 
like Ben is not lying, especially in like in high school and in college, I was very theologically um, closed. Like I, I did not have a lot of room for differing viewpoints and opinions. And I think God just in his kindness is slowly kind of like opening up those doors a little bit, not so that heresy comes in or whatever, but just to go, hey, maybe I'm not right about that. You know, like maybe there's not this 1000% clarity on this secondary issue that I can have and that's okay. And I can still minister with people who see things differently. Uh, can I be kind? Can I be charitable? in that way, or even there's been times now where I find myself on the other side of the, uh, the road going, seeing somebody acting in ways that I used to act, maybe a younger man who's really zealous or a seminary student or something like that, and just going, hey dude, chill. <laughs> I know you think this is like the most important thing ever. It's not, trust me, and it's not worth it. I see what you're doing to your brother or to your sister when you speak that way and you're gonna hurt them, and God doesn't want that, and maybe you're wrong, <laughs> and uh, actually you probably are wrong, you know, uh, and those kinds of things, and so you can even challenge lovingly and correct, help correct brothers and sisters if you're thinking or operating in a way that leads you away from loving your neighbor, you can be sure that that's leading you away from the mind of Jesus, from the mind of Christ. So, um, so yeah, I'm telling you, in, in my experience, there's a lot of people that are dying and they're going to hell and those people don't care about premillennialism versus amillennialism. <laughs> they do not care whether you think the spiritual gifts are still going on or if they ceased in the times of the apostles. They don't care about even Calvinism, right? They just need Jesus. They need penal substitutionary atonement. They need uh, contra-conditional love of God. They need adoption. They need the Trinity. They need repentance. They need these foundational things. And so often we kind of usurp those things in a really weird backwards way that I don't want us to be guilty of as Christians. I, I don't want to be guilty of, of that. Too often I think we can kind of act like we've graduated a little bit, like we've kind of moved on from those base level things uh, when in reality those are the ones that unify us as the church, uh, that ground us. And so... Um, yeah, stay out of the Facebook comments, you know, love your brothers and sisters, don't be a tribe, you know, like be, uh, be a brother and a sister, a family that, that crosses lines so that we can live in full accord with one another, we can live in this way that, that Paul's describing, and so um, I'm going to close this way, I had a, um, some song lyrics that I wanted to share with you, I shared them with Ben, I shared the actual song with Ben, it's by a band called My Epic, which is kind of a hardcore Christian rock band, um, and he's like, yeah, that probably is a little too hardcore for the, the church. I was like, okay, well, I'll just tell everybody to go look it up yourselves so you can actually hear it, but uh, I'm just going to share the lyrics with you. It's a, The title of my sermon is Lower Still, and I just stole that from them. Their title of this song is Lower Still, um, talking about the humility of Jesus, and I thought it was an appropriate way to close and kind of move us to communion, and so um, what I wanted to ask you, though, is if you'd be willing, if you're not comfortable, you don't have to, but if you'd be willing just to close your eyes and, and just listen as I read to kind of like, you know, clear out distractions and just imagine this scene that they're painting of Christ himself and then just let the spirit move in your heart however he might and then I'll pray and we'll take communion uh, and finish worshiping together. So again, this is by my epic called Lower Still. It says, look, he's covered in dirt. The blood of his mother has mixed with the earth. And she's just a child who's throbbing in pain from the terror of birth by the light in a cave. Now they've laid that small baby where creatures come eat like a meal for the swine who have no clue that he is still holding together the world that they see. 
They don't know just how low he has to go, lower still. Look now, he's kneeling, he's washing their feet. Though they're all filthy fishermen, traitors and thieves. Now he's pouring his heart out and they're falling asleep. But he has to go lower still, for there is greater love to show. Hands to the plow, further down now, blood must flow. All these steps are personal, all his shame is ransom. Oh, do you see, do you see just how low he has come? Do you see it now? No one takes from him what he freely gives away. So as we move to communion, communion is an act of humility itself. It's you saying, I need something. I need somebody outside of myself. And it's a call to look to this one who emptied himself so that you might have fullness of life, that you might be glorified, that, that you might be with him. Communion is this reminder um, that you are not enough. So I ask you to use this space as you come, whenever you're ready, to take that, to ask God to form this posture, form this mind of Christ in you more and more, slowly but surely, to to drive you lower, drive you lower still, um, to be like him. So I'm gonna pray, and then you guys can come, and then we'll, we'll worship together to end our time, and then eat donuts. So, Lord, I just ask that you would make the people of Icon um, people that keep going down, trusting in your righteousness as the one who came from these unimaginable heights, places we can't, can't even fathom, but that we will get to be with you someday. And you did that so that we might be with you always, that we might fully understand what, what that condescension meant and worship you for it. Would they dwell as a people in sweet unity, unity that lasts, unity that's strong. It's not just because I see these people every week or because we have similar interests or because we have similar theological convictions, but because they just love each other, because you've changed them, that you've made them new, uh, and that they can, can be this evidence to the watching city, to their neighborhoods of, of something different because they've embraced this mind, this posture of Jesus as humble servants who love others at great cost to themselves. So would you be with this church? Would you bless them? And I don't mean that in like a trite or a um, you know, prosperity type of gospel way, but I mean in the reality of your presence, your power, your kindness, your mercy to them. The things that they need, would you provide? Um, would you increase love? Would they be, be a different congregation next time I come and visit? Would, they even, would it be so evident uh, what you're doing, how you're working and moving in them that it would be unmistakably of you, King Jesus? Would you help them? Would you bring um, energy and life where they need that, support and hope where they need that, uh, and give them all of you? Uh, make them hungry for more of you. I ask all of this for your glory and for their good and for the good of Seattle. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org.
And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are his.